This afternoon I may proclaim to you the word of our God as we read it from 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, as well as what we find in the Ten Commandments, Commandment 7, you shall not commit adultery, and what we also confess concerning that commandment in Lord's Day 41 of our Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 41, we find on page 556. Our book of praise. This is where the church learns to speak God's word after him. What does the seventh commandment teach us? That all unchastity is cursed by God. We must therefore detest it from the heart and live chaste and disciplined lives both within and outside of holy marriage. Does God in this commandments forbid nothing more than adultery and similar shameful sins? Since we, body and soul, are temples of the Holy Spirit, it is God's will that we keep ourselves pure and holy. Therefore, he forbids all unchaste acts, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever may entice us to unchastity. That's our confession in Lord's Day 41. In response to the proclamation of God's word, we'll sing together Psalm 119, stanzas 1, 2, and 4. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, it would take very little to convince you that ours is a culture flooded with sexuality. You find it at the checkout line, in songs, sports, on billboards, on the beach, on the movie screen, on beer commercials, on YouTube, in catalogs, in car magazines, on college campuses, even on children's programs. It's all around us. And what we see is that sex sells. The sermon, however, is not about the culture out there. It's concerned with what we as Christians are doing, what we are seeing. Well, there's no denying that our hyper-sexed culture affects us. How are we then to live faithfully in this culture? How are we to honor the seventh commandment that addresses human sexuality? And that's a question that concerns not only our young people, it equally concerns the older among us, married or not, who also live in today's Western culture. How are we to live faithfully? Well, there's no denying it, that God in his providence has been pleased to place us in a world where the lies and the temptations of sex are many. God has you right where he wants you to be, knowing full well what you will face. Therefore, we may not act with regard to sexuality as if we are powerless. 
We may not think that we are all alone in the struggle. We may recall the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truths that grant freedom. The grace of Christ not only addresses your need for past forgiveness or for future hope, but it also addresses everything you face where God has put you right now. The word of God and the working of the Spirit give you everything you need to celebrate sexuality in a way that honors the God who created it. This is evidence of God's holy love. He doesn't want you to stumble, to hurt yourself or others. And so he gives you his word and spirit to know how to fully enjoy the good things he's given you to enjoy. So I'm going to proclaim to you the word of God this afternoon. In the seventh commandment, the Lord speaks to us about our sexuality. I'm going to take you through three things. First, we're going to see the glorious purpose of sexuality. Secondly, the grievous perversion of sexuality. Thirdly, the gracious purification of sexuality. So it's important that we start out by reflecting on what God has revealed on the matter. For the church at various times in her history has been influenced far more by the culture of the day than by God's word on the matter. In the time of the Apostle Paul, Christians were influenced heavily by the dualism of Greek philosophy This dualism said that the soul is the real you, while the body is just a prison house in which you are trapped for the duration of your earthly life. And so the desires of the body, including love and sexuality, were second rate. They were inferior to the real you. This dualism influenced the thinking of many in church history The reformers, however, returned to the biblical teaching on sexuality, which we'll see in a moment. But you fast forward then to the Victorian era, and any talk of sexuality was off limits, because sexuality was regarded as unclean. Today, we're living after the sexual revolution of the 60s, which obliterated the mystique of intimacy to the point where today sex is as cheap and as common as brushing your teeth. In Genesis 1, the Holy Spirit tells us that on the sixth day of creation, God created mankind, male and female. And then at the end of that day, God saw all that he had made and declared it all very good. He declared this about all that he had made on those six days, including two individuals, male and female. These two individuals he had brought together earlier on the sixth day. And when he examined them together on that day, he saw that the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. 
He saw them in their maleness and femaleness as he saw them in their sexuality. Added to that, he commanded them, remember in, one, in Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. That's a command we know for, among other things, intercourse. And following all this, God said, it's very good. That leaves no place then for dividing the human being into two parts with the body inferior to the soul. Intimacy, it's a gift from God, therefore approved of by God. What though was God's purpose in creating sex? Some said he did it for the sake of procreation, of being fruitful and multiplying. And it's true, he created sex for that purpose. But let it be clear this afternoon that he did not create sex for that purpose alone, not even for that purpose in the first place. For the absence or presence of children doesn't determine whether a marriage is complete. Scripture doesn't put things in that kind of light. God didn't create sexuality with reproduction as its ultimate purpose. Now the purpose actually goes beyond that. Before God created the woman, he saw Adam in the garden and said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. Took one of Adam's ribs used it to fashion a woman. And then what was the love-struck Adam's reaction? He couldn't refrain from applauding God's unique and beautiful handiwork. He broke out in song, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That's the first wedding ceremony where the father gives the bride away to the groom. And by the work of the spirit, the groom sings. He celebrates a deep union between himself and his bride. He recognized that between the two of them, there was a unity of flesh and mind, indeed a unity of being. Yes, he recognized it clearly in marriage to become one. She is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Unity of purpose and thought and desire. Well, the Holy Spirit then places his seal of approval on Adam's song of unity by adding in the following verse, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. The one flesh of which the Spirit speaks is a reference to the full unity of being between man and wife, so that the two are no longer two separate individuals, but they are one entity. And that unity receives expression in sexual intimacy. Brothers and sisters, young people, 
Let's all at this point also take to heart the sequence of the three phases in that verse. First, a man leaves his father and mother. Then he is united to his wife, marrying her, declaring lifetime loyalty to her. And only then does he become one flesh with her. In other words, intimacy doesn't belong before marriage, but within marriage, by God's decree. So this not only prohibits premarital sexual intimacy so rampant in our culture, but also prohibits extramarital intimacy. The Holy Spirit says they, husband and wife, become one flesh. Sexual expression, intimacy, young people may never be separate from marriage. And so, sovereign God created sexuality. If so, then sexuality is, for us, not the problem. The problem comes when we understand it in the wrong way. Yes, when we are ruled by our sexuality. Adam and Eve in paradise, though, were not ruled by pleasure, but ruled by God. They had hormones, and they were active, but they didn't struggle with their hormones. They enjoyed sexuality as God intended it, as the full expression, as an expression of full unity. That was his purpose with creating sexuality, and we've said that already. But even then, you and I need to understand that sexuality has a purpose even beyond the full expression of unity. It was perfectly created and designed for a deeply spiritual purpose. Yes, a glorious purpose. It was meant to remind you of God. God's ultimate intention was to bring glory to himself by the sexuality he created. It was meant to amaze you, not just with its existence, but with the power and the glory of the one who brought it into existence. Sexuality was meant to be one of God's means of getting your attention and bringing glory to him. It exists to stimulate Worship, not of sex itself, but of the one who created it. That's its glorious purpose. Even in the most intimate and personal places of your lives, you were meant to live for the glory of your God. And so the Apostle Paul can end off in our reading from 1 Corinthians 6, saying it clearly, You were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You have been chosen by God's sovereign grace to live for his glory, even in your private thoughts and desires, even in the most private and intimate activities of your body, 
even in those moments of the most powerful physical and emotional fulfillment, you've been chosen to live for his glory. God's creative power, brothers and sisters, is what introduces you to the highest and most fulfilling pleasure that a human being could ever experience. Such pleasures are only ever found in living as you were designed to live, that is, for God and his glory. If God designed your sexuality for worship, then your sexuality cannot be about you. It's about him, the one you are called to confess, believe, and glorify. Your body belongs to God. So your body is not for self-gratification, but for God-glorification. That's the glorious purpose of sexuality, to be enjoyed within the context of the marriage bond where man and wife live for each other and at the same time, and even more, live for God. We come to our second point this afternoon where we see the grievous perversion of sexuality. The fall into sin, brothers and sisters, brought so much brokenness also in the matter of sexuality. The Lord has today placed us in a culture that has gone sexually mad. It's at the point where sexual impurity seems normal, it's just a way of life. Adultery, fornication, prostitution, homosexuality are nowadays considered acceptable practices. It's sexuality has been perverted. It's become a God. To say it differently, our hypersexed culture is the result of the individualizing of sexuality. It's all about me, my fulfillment. That can even apply to believers. I want what I want. Yet, It's not just a modern phenomenon. Consider for a moment Leviticus chapter 18. Maybe we should turn there together for a moment. Leviticus 18, the Israelites had lived in Egypt, a hypersexed culture, and they were on their way to Canaan, which had the exact same problem. So if we look at Leviticus 18, in verse 2, the Lord tells Moses in verse 2 to say to Israel, I am the Lord your God. According to the doings of the land of Egypt where you dwelt, you shall not do. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan where I am bringing you, you shall not do nor shall you walk in their ordinances. And these ordinances we gather are what the Lord fills out for us 
in the verses 6 and following. None of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness. I am the Lord. Uncover his nakedness, brothers and sisters, refers to any kind of inappropriate sexual behavior. Families throughout the generations at that time lived in very close proximity to one another, often in the same home. So there was lots of opportunity for close, intimate contact. The Lord prohibited such contact. Why? Well, the Lord says several times here, I am the Lord your God. In other words, you are not to worship sex or sexuality. That's what paganism does. Worships Baal as the God of fertility. Israel was set apart from that, set apart to be holy. So the Lord reminds them that he, not sex, is their God. So their worship was to be directed toward him. And so Leviticus 18 reveals to us that there is a connection between worship and sex. It reveals that worshiping anything other than God always ends up in worshiping the self. It's the individualizing of sex. All about what I want. It's a perversion indeed of what God created for his own glory. So also the Apostle Paul, in our reading from 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 6 rather, looks at the subject of sex through the lens of worship. In verse 12, we find him there responding to a very favorite motto of the Corinthians, all things are lawful for me. It's the worldview that says, Christ fulfilled the law, so I don't have to live out its requirements. I have Christian liberty. Paul's answer to that kind of worldview is very forceful. He basically says, even if all things were lawful, you would still have a problem. Because when it comes to sex, you don't have a lawful problem. You have a mastery problem. Even the free things you enjoy are not free if they enslave you. Even God's good things can turn into bad things when they become dominating things. Paul is saying that by nature, we have wandering hearts. We confess Jesus as Lord, but are daily tempted to give our heart to the rule of other masters, even if just for a little, a few minutes. After all, in the grand scheme of things, what difference will it make? Engage in a little fantasy? Why not? Cast your eyes for a moment at a woman's plunging neckline. Who doesn't? We've become very skillful at deciding for ourselves what's a big deal and what's not. 
Well, beloved, if you allow your heart to be mastered by sexuality, if even for a moment here and there you not only misuse this good gift of God, but you also end up being controlled by it. You've put sexuality in a place that God never intended it to be put. You've made it a God. And Paul makes clear that this will not do. In verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 6, Paul places special emphasis on our identity with Christ. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot, a prostitute? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, God says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. With this shocking and forceful language, Paul reminds us of something we must always remember with regard to our sexuality. If you are a child of God, you've been joined to Christ and your body doesn't belong to yourself. That's a thought that goes obviously against the grain of today's mindset. No one can tell me what to do with my body. God says, your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to me. You are fully united to Christ. And so, here it is. You take Christ with you wherever you are and in whatever you're doing. And so, Paul says, get this. If you engage in sexual immorality, whether that's adultery, pornography, or sexual intimacy before marriage or outside of marriage, or any other sexual sin, it's as if the members of Christ are engaging in sexual sin. To be perfectly blunt, when you put your mind and or body where it doesn't belong, you are putting the Lord Jesus where he doesn't belong. And that's a grievous perversion of one's relationship with Christ. Brothers and sisters, sexuality today has been perverted. We are fast becoming a pornographic society. According to some estimates, the making and selling of pornography now represents the seventh largest industry in America. New stuff is being posted every week, videos, pages. And the reality is that while young people get attracted to this one way or another, intentionally or unintentionally, so too do adults, men, also women. And because this goes against God's design, it can only result in damage. And it does to you and to your loved ones. So much so that you view the opposite sex, spouse, 
or friend or otherwise, not as someone for whom to lay down your life, but as someone from whom you want to gratify your own life. The hurt that this can cause to oneself and one's loved ones is what brings Paul in our reading to say, flee from sexual immorality. That's the bottom line. If you're going to live in the way that God has called you to live in the midst of this hypersexed world, you must be willing to do a whole lot of running. Don't experiment. Don't test your limits. Don't flirt with the devil. Put on your shoes and run for it. Run from the seductions of the enemy who will lure you with lies. Run from situations and locations that play to your weaknesses. You have to be willing to run from sexual perversion. God calls you here to do what he has empowered you to do. And parents, speak openly about this matter with your growing children. They receive from this culture a very perverted perception of of sexuality. And so read with your children at the supper table from... Song of Songs, and other passages that speak likewise. That's going to illustrate for them that in the area of sexuality, one must always have a sense of awe and respect for the good God who gave a good gift. And so we come to our final point where we see the gracious purification of sexuality. Many Christians today are living a double life. And many of these brothers and sisters in the faith live in fearful secrecy and silence. Is there really hope? Some say that the hope for sexuality is more explicit sex education, which is a pretty hopeless thought. No, the hope for sexuality is not a thing, but a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Sexuality groans for redemption. It groans for the one God sent into the world. Christ came into this world, leaving the home of his father. He was a boy, became a young man. He became well acquainted with sin against the seventh commandment in his culture. He himself also had hormones. He was tempted as we are. Yet he never fell prey to the perversion of sexuality. Instead, he emptied himself and washed away all our sins on the cross, including those against the seventh commandment. That's where he endured the weight of God's wrath on the cross against sexual perversion. And for us, that means that our seventh commandment sins have been wiped away 
God doesn't regard us as sexual sinners, but as righteous, forgiven, redeemed. That's the gospel of grace for you. For sexual sins you commit before marriage, within marriage, beyond marriage. It gives hope to those filled with shame and guilt. Christ also gave the Spirit by whose power we may recognize our sins and also break with our sins, including the worship of bad things. (coughs) Brothers and sisters, in this life, in this area of our sanctification, of learning to live lives thankful to God, we remind ourselves once again of our identity in Christ. It's why we also read from Ephesians 5. The contrast the Apostle Paul sets up is clear. He speaks about those who are disobedient, those children of darkness. They engage in sexual immorality. They are impure, unchaste, And so they live in unchastity. They do shameful things in the dark. But we are children of light. We are members of the kingdom of Christ. We are holy ones, declared holy in Christ, becoming holy by his spirit. Sexual immorality isn't just wrong for us. It's not fitting. Verse 8 For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. We've been redeemed from sin, are being purified of sin. So why would we walk back into the shadows of perversion, into the worship of sex? It's just not who we are. At the cross of Christ, we find the sacrifice for our sin, and we find the cleansing of our guilt And at the resurrection on Easter Sunday, as well as at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we find the power to start living pure lives for Christ. And since we have the promised Holy Spirit, we can attain to what the Apostle Paul commands in Ephesians 5, 3. That's where he says, but fornication And all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. That's a tall order. Paul doesn't stop at telling us to avoid doing sexual sin. No. Sexual immorality, uncleanness, covetousness, or someone else's body is not even to be named among you. We may not pursue with our thoughts, words, and actions things that are unmentionable, as also the catechism goes into detail. We've been set apart from unchaste acts, gestures, words, thoughts, desires. Well, those are some challenging verses in Ephesians 5 because they have meaning for the things that we often laugh about, for the way we dress, for the television we watch, for the movies we see for entertainment, 
for the commercials that interrupt, interrupt every sporting event, for the advertisements we see on Facebook, YouTube. Those verses of Ephesians 5 call us to take a good, hard look at the things we choose to put in front of our faces and perhaps have invited into our hearts. We need to make decisions about whether we should continue in that way. By the purifying work of the Spirit, we can attain to the command not to have any hint of sexual immorality among us. For the Holy Spirit does not dull the conscience by making sin look normal. He exposes sin for what it really is. Through the Holy Spirit, you are being changed from persons who serve the self into persons who serve the other. You can start living in obedience to the seventh commandment as a temple of the Holy Spirit. You have the Spirit. He's been promised to you at your baptism. And so you are called to bring forth the fruit of the Spirit. Love for the other. Patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Brothers and sisters, God's grace has given you a new identity and a new dignity. It's God's grace that has the power to protect you and purify you from asking of sexuality what you're not to ask. It's his grace that gives you the power to say no to the temptations of sexuality when you need to say no. And remember, it's God's grace that brings you into the presence of the one who alone can give you lasting satisfaction and joy, and pleasure that your heart wants. So when you are celebrating sexuality, you should be able at the exact same time to celebrate the cross and the spirit of Christ. God created it for his glory. You have been given empowering grace, transforming grace for the battle against perverting sexuality. The Christ whom you love, who loved you first, he is faithful, he is powerful, he will supply you with all you need to please him and to find your greatest pleasure in him. Amen.